0: Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge. Today's guest is Dr. Lori Sensi, Lecturer of Applied Analytics at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Dr. Sensi has over two decades of experience in risk, compliance, conduct, capital markets, quantitative research, product development, client advisory, consulting, writing, and teaching with such austere financial services brands as HSBC. In conversation with Emerge CEO and head of research, Daniel Fajella on today's show, they dissect the impact of AI on insider risk detection and compliance in the financial services space and what a day in the life is like for a market abuse investigator. Without further ado, here's their conversation.
1: So, Lori, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here uh, cool. talking about a topic that I love. So
1: And that you're up close and personal with in an academic so. sense and a business sense. We're going to define the term first. We've talked so much, and some of our audiences have heard, Lori, these various considerations around risk and compliance within the banking space. Lots of AI action here. You play in the domain of kind of unauthorized trading. This is different than insider trading. There's a distinction at play. Can you define that unauthorized trading space for us?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so unauthorized trading is a, is a form of internal fraud. It's where actors in the bank more most likely were focused on traders and the people around the traders. It could be salespeople, it could be operations, middle office people, anyone that's involved in the trading process. It's really the kind of the intersection of the trading transactions, the people involved and the processes in the bank, which for anyone who's been in banking for the last 40 years knows it's basically a culmination of 40 years of technology stapled, glued and taped together. So there are many, and while most banks have a good control policies in place and processes in place, there's always opportunity for things to slip through the cracks and opportunities arrive. So it's really the monitoring. Think of it as the bird's eye view of looking down across all the trading business for a bank.
1: And it's it's looking across a very kludgy, you know, like you had said, duct tape and, and bubble gum kind of a situation, which, which makes it tough right. to look at. It's not exactly a clean perspective. So with that being said, we can talk about a little bit of how leaders in this space operate? Because obviously, again, companies are going to, it's going to be a while for them to digitally transform. They're working with some clunky systems, but they still have to get this done. It's incredibly important work. Walk yeah. us through, I guess, what a day in the life is of the kinds of things we want to detect and, and how we're doing that today in this role.
2: Okay. What's interesting about this space is there's no one right way, right? If, if we look at the, the market abuse space, FINRA has defined for us what, what a bad behavior looks like. Here we're working in a very amorphous environment. We're looking for the opportunity for a trader or some other actor involved in trading employees and it could also involve clients you know outside the bank it finds an opportunity to either hide p and l benefit themselves in some way through p and l you know historically you know we have the large events that we've looked at you know that have happened globally you know there there was collusion involved maybe or just not good controls in place, and what's traditionally happened in this space is that the regulators react or the bank reacts and immediately puts a band aid over that particular thing. And as we know, that anyone's looking to defraud, they will certainly shift over and look for the new, new place.
1: So just to to clarify for the folks that are not directly in banking or in your part of it, hiding P and L, I, I can make some assumptions of what I think that is, which is sort of maybe some money came in that maybe we wanted to push off somewhere else outside of, you know, the, so, so this is essentially graft of some kind.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, the more complex the processes are within the bank, the more likely, you know, or, or the easier it is to sort of hide. Okay. Okay. Hide losses, for example, and, and let's the context gets even wider than that. It gets down to, you know, how employees are compensated when they're compensated, how the, the financial performance tides, to that compensation so okay you know, there, there's so many different elements that come In- into play here
1: interesting okay yeah yeah so it it might behoove us if our PL for this division looked this certain way because we're all going to get a kick especially these guys and we might want to figure out a way to leverage that so very very interesting this is certainly not a topic we've hit directly nail on the head on the show before so i'm excited to unpack this I'm sure. I'm going to throw out and we want to talk about any person or any individual company, but I imagine there's similar strategies used all over the place. My, my guess mm-hmm. here is that if we have some convoluted way that we're paid and there's an escrow service and then there's some other service, there might be folks who could kind of invent a fee that happened during this process or they could yes. maybe use their uncle's company for something and maybe nobody knows that's their uncle because he lives in Switzerland, but nobody knows that. Are these the kinds of things we're talking about, finding ways to interject ourselves into the money flows?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it can come down to as simple as timing. You could also hide in plain sight. You know, so historically, you know, the the model suppliers out in this space have relied on things like counting the number of times a, a trader has canceled and amended a trade, right? So, however... That is also part of, you know, normal course of business. And so it kind of creates a place maybe to hide in plain sight. But that's not really, that's a really small part of the story. It's really a very complex web of all kinds of activity. And if you work at a very large global bank like I do, I mean, basically the activity travels around the world and it becomes even more complex. So I, I guess what I could say is it's a complex problem. It requires a complex solution, but it also requires a solution that's adaptable in the same way as our criminals or our people yeah. who want to defraud us adapt. So, you know, historically, the space has really gone for either you're in or you're out. You know, they always have like a lot of thresholded or rule-based of course. detection. Of
1: course.
2: And, you know, your detection has to be able to adapt. One hundred percent.
1: Yeah, we're in an adversarial system. We're, we're, you live in an adversarial system, Rory, right? So you don't get to, Correct. uh, there is no one perfect way where once we set it up, it's like, great, this is how the laws of physics work. We'll just set it up this way. It's always going to work this way. Nope. When, as soon as we have something, somebody's going to figure out a new way around it. So before we get into where AI and data starts to make us more nimble, I'd love mm-hmm. to know some of these other kinds of, you know, and probably some of them are affected. So I don't want to throw shade on everything IT. But no. if we if we talk about some of the existing processes, you mentioned starting canceling a trade might be indicative that something fuzzy is happening. We might want to, we might want to like have that get flagged, right? And of course, maybe it's a false positive, but we're going to flag it. What are the other kinds of things that we're flagging? What kind of technology is, plays a, a role there?
2: Yeah. I mean, so traditionally, and I've been at a number of banks over the past seven years, and traditionally, the, the way they, they manage this type of risk in individual bank controls, very few of them, or at least I haven't seen one, is able to take this entire, like the holistic view around basically the day in the life of the trader, yep. the trade, and not only the day in the life of the trader, but kind of the lifetime of the trader at the firm often these activities, it's it's not the one-time hit. It's sort of hanging under the radar, which makes it very complex. So the bank, you know, any bank might say, okay, if we see activity and it's over, I don't know, $5,000, let's say, well, you know, people involved in these types of things are very smart. They might start, you know, hitting you with, every day, as opposed to one big hit. So it's really a look at, you know, the the one-time big event, which can happen, or really the skimming. It's this kind of traditional criminal behavior. I mean, I really, this space sits at kind of the intersection of criminology, understanding of cap market, also understanding of organizational structures, systems, processes, and behavior. so you're really you sit in a place where the you know there's no theory. So when i I spent a good part of my career working in financial markets, it was really easy for me to go find the textbook and find the model. You know markets are observable. We have a lovely set of academics that tell you, hey, if you value this this way, it'll help you in this way. That doesn't work here. Every bank is different. I uh, got going back five years ago, I worked at a startup, there was a collaboration with Credit Suisse and Palantir, and they had built a lovely rogue trading model. But ultimately what happened was they realized they couldn't pick it up and just drop it on top of any bank. And that was mainly due to the systems, realizing that banks sit on top of accounting systems and p systems and HR systems. And these systems are created for one purpose. And now you sit in a place that's trying to repurpose this data but it wasn't collected for that reason. So, you know, it, it, you know, as we transition to discussion around data, I mean, the siloed you know, data collection is really critical you know, in this space.
1: I'll say, I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I talked to a founder who really wished that their applications in one enterprise, let's call it a financial services company, worked and transferred those lessons, transferred immediately to the next company, I probably wouldn't have to run podcasts anymore, I'll tell you that. I might still do it for fun. But yeah, I mean, it's is—it's remarkably tough because of how bespoke it is. So that's also why AI's got to fit into the mix. And that's part of your, obviously, journey into this space. So talk to us a little bit about maybe where you're seeing today, data, start to wake up value, identify patterns in ways that's more responsive to what you need
2: so there's a couple of things, and if I go one step before data is the organization has to be asking the right question. It all starts with the question, and what I've found in my experience in this space is organizations you know culturally are under pressure to deliver, deliver, deliver yep. they'll work with what they have, and they often don't even ask the the right question so they'll they'll depend on their own sort of how should I say, own cognitive bias and say like, okay, someone had this activity 20 years ago, let's copy what that guy, what that criminal did, and we'll try and replicate that. And it doesn't really work that way because, you know, so this space requires a very broad question, which doesn't really help the people going to collect the data actually. It's really hard, but they really need to understand like, how does your organization operate? well, what is, you know, what is this type of activity that goes on every day look like? You know, what are the data assets we have currently? And again, you know, I talk about having to like transform data that's collected for accounting purposes or, you know, for compensation purposes and all these things. And now trying to translate that into something that's meaningful in this space. And one thing organizations need to think about is creating the future data asset. So every day that passes, we could be taking the same data and repurposing it, saving it in a different way, putting the critical data elements on big data platforms, keeping it clean. So what's important in one context isn't necessarily important in in this context. So that, you know they really have to think broadly around you know the way they manage the, the data that's used for this type of thing.
1: And that's a that's a culture change, isn't it? Because these IT it's systems, totally. these Frankenstein systems that we're working Correct. with, were not built to real-time feed data to this other system to figure out how it crosses the communications data and detect fraud, right? It was never built for that.
2: Correct. No, it's never built. and that's why these programs are very much siloed. They you know they talk about the the holistic view. But what happens is the holistic view is on the outcome and you can't really solve this problem unless you're underneath at kind of the before, before we see the outcome. And and I see a lot of purveyors out there trying to say, Oh, we'll reduce your false positives. And they do it after the fact. I'm like, no, you have to normalize and change your models and look at your data and go back and ask the right question. But again, you know, or the organization, if the organizational culture is to just deliver, 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 and cut costs, cut costs, cut costs, it's really hard to say. Hmm, we have to clean up all this data. We have to go and kind of ask the right question. We have to spend the time to do this. The beauty of this is it's so flexible. The the new tools that are out there well, not even new anymore, but you know the AI tools that are out there are fantastic. They're responsive. You you can get feedback very quickly. It's just there are a number of hurdles. I think that organizations need to think about before yeah. they get, there. honestly, in my world, the AI part was, is the easiest. Oh. The model building was the easiest part.
1: In our world too. I mean, we work with the buyers, we work with the sellers. It's ridiculous to say that, you know, writing the Python code is the hard part. The hard part is oh. change management. And, and really so much of that is executive fluency around what this stuff even means. Why would I invest a dime in it if I'm not going to see that dime back tomorrow? You need a lot of context to know that this is a capability. Like you had just said, what if we could organize this in a way where we could use it over time and it would be a valuable asset, right? That's Correct. that's a whole, it's not just being smart. It's, a, it's having an, an understanding of this domain space with the technology right. that gets you there. And that's all very challenging. So to your point, totally validating the change management is the tough stuff once once you've got a little bit of that you get a little bit of runway to start unlocking some value from data to make your job better you're certainly on that path right now what are some of those junctures where data's waking up and doing something
2: useful i think looking at data that or incorporating data that doesn't necessarily appear to fit in the problem you know so I think that's that's where it gets very interesting, you know, particularly when you talk about humans and behavior. There's often other signals that are happening around the humans. And, you know, so you, you need you need the HR data, you, you need the transactive data, you need the, the you need the organizational data. You know, think about, I mean to your point, culture matters, right? Organizational structures can easily impact the way your people behave. You know, so there's, oh, and, you know, of course, now in my head being in this space, I already have, you know, a clustering model. (laughs) You can almost picture like the different parts of the organization. And often what we find is it ties back to an individual. So maybe that individual has not only has not done the, how should I say, the inappropriate behavior, but maybe a lot of people are tied back to that individual. So it becomes an organizational problem. And the thing is, we have to think about how we redefined what organization means. Like, you know, so typical of an organization, we're going to monitor people in this business. I'll tell you an interesting story. This goes back to the first job I had in this space. The bank I was at had, I was there as a consultant and they had gone through a very large global situation and I started reading through the court documents. And one thing that struck me was the th- traders, the conversations between the traders, you know, in the court, kept referring to themselves as us traders. So basically, they've kind of created an organization that exists outside the bank. So they belong to that club. Mm. And as much as the bank can train them, monitor them, and, you know, try and how should I Yeah, monitor their behavior? Yeah, yeah. They make their decisions based on this other organization. It, and and that's a challenge. So banks have to start thinking about, all right, who's the peer? What does the organization look like? And how does all of this influence what we see every day? And often this comes out later after the regulators get, get in there, right? Yeah. I mean, it, so if you want to see it beforehand, they have to really rethink the problem, recontextualize the problem as well. Get away from this kind of process, process, process way of thinking about this very complex problem.
1: And You mentioned, so yeah, clearly there's factoring for, you framed it in an interesting way, the traders think of themselves as traders right there. We're not first an employee of XYZ bank. Right. And I think at the end of the day, if we want an accurate model of the world, we should operate on a default that, Entities or individuals will act in whatever they believe their best interest is. And for that reason, you will never not have a job in the industry that you're in. And so, and neither will the people in anti-money laundering or whatever else. So because of that, again, part of that is factoring that into our decision making, not just thinking about these ossified processes. You brought up briefly some of the tools that are coming to life. What feels most useful to you? What's starting to become relevant that you're seeing add some value in terms of data?
2: Yeah, so the one I have the most experience with is a deep learning neural network. It's an unsupervised model. It's called a long-term, short-term memory model. It's a very adaptive model. It's a, It's generally used for anomaly detection, yep. right? Which is great, except, you know, the, the these types of models are very hard to explain. So not only do you need your detection model, but you need an explainer. Which I love, but you know what the explainers are not that different than a lot of the attribution models that we've used in everywhere else in finance. So here's a case where, you know, if I go and sit on the trading desk or with risk, they're very used to dealing in that sort of space. We have to take some of that thinking and bring it back into the compliance and surveillance space. You know, they have to think in terms of risk. And gray areas. Now you could have unsupervised models, but then because the, this type of risk is so complex, what's wonderful about a lot of the machine learning techniques is you can have complementary models. So it's almost like you're spinning the globe. You can look at your problem from different angles and you can connect them, you can remove them. And I think that fits this problem, you know, well.
1: Got it, got it. So, you're, you're essentially, tell me if I'm, I'm going to put this in, language I think will Uh, make sense for the audience.
2: Okay.
1: You can run, you know, you've got your rules-based systems. Is it over $5,000? Is it the same amount of money for seven days in a row? Is it this? Is it that? You've got all your if-thens. But what you're saying is we can also train models to detect patterns in this other totally novel way or look for patterns in this other totally novel way. And then you can look at what is the cream that rises across these algorithms and, and then ask, are Correct. there new hypotheses here? Are there new places that I can
2: dig into? That? Yeah. yeah. Does this make sense? I mean, the reality is the, these tools are able to take, you know, let's just say you have 20, feature, 20 pieces of data that you think are important. You know, these models can process all 20 things all at the same yep. time yep. and look at the intersection where all these things are happening and compare them across long time series or at points in time. And, yeah, and I, and I think the important thing here is that organizations start to look at multiple sets of tooling because, you know, risk is amorphous. And and because we're dealing in a very complex area, you sometimes need to get different looks at, you know, the different different views of risk, right? Yeah. So you could have the organizational view. You could have the person view. You could have the group view. You could have the actual activity view. Yeah. The operational process view, you this, know.
1: This is good. So I, there's one takeaway I think is really useful for the listeners, which is for some problems like risk, which is inherently amorphous. I like the word amorphous, by the way. I overuse it myself sometimes, but I like it. There, It's important to say, okay, we're not just going to level up to an AI improved dashboard. No, we we may have multiple dashboards. We may want to right. ask, starting with different questions, starting with different suppositions and with different maybe groups that we have in focus, we may want lenses of reporting, not just a new AI enabled single report.
2: Yeah. And then the other thing, the beauty of AI is it could give us implied groups. Think about that. So not only can we say, okay, we have, we have our human view, things that we think about, but the AI is so wonderful. It can help us say, huh, these three people together are an implied person, or these are implied activities. So almost create like a generic person or process or activity.
1: You know, d- tell me, I want to make sure that my analogy fits, but I do want to stick this yeah. analogy in there. So the analogy... To this is in the e-commerce space where we're looking at what people are doing on a website and buying, and then we're saying, you know what? You're a 45 year old woman. You live in one of these metro areas. You start off with one of these first two purchases. We kind of know your type. You know, we're ready for you. Yep. And we don't know. We don't know your name or anything, but you you fit some weird mold that humans never identified, but AI did. Is it? The, it's the same thing in risk. It sounds
2: absolutely. Like. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So. You know, in my space, I've developed something like this. And this is how it came to me. Just, I was a so, teacher at Columbia. I'm teaching a session on marketing analytics. And as I'm teaching it, in my head, I start realizing this is the same problem I have. Yeah. In and it was a beautiful, like, recontextualization of just good thinking. I was like, that's it. Yep. And, I, and I think that, that's what happens, you know, in organizations, you know, they have the culture, the people that work in compliance, people who work in surveillance. They never say like, well, hey, let, let's see what marketing's doing, because that they might have a similar problem, you know, a different type of similar problem. But it yeah, is a similar yeah. problem. And, you know, truth be told, that's how I got to the, the solution that I developed here. That's pretty
1: uh, cool. That's pretty yeah. cool. I, I guess the, the takeaway for the audience, you can, you can use AI to find new pockets of customers that might be great customers and pay you. And you can also use AI to find personas that will rob you blind within your business. Why uh, not? I and, mean,
2: it's <laughs> yeah, it's like the negative transaction, really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You, you want to detect the people that have a big upside and a downside, and you want to do something about it. And Lori, I know that's all we have for time, For but I love ending on that note. I think this is a great point for the audience. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode.
2: Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure.
0: And bringing today's episode to a close, I think what Lori is citing right at the end here about the organizational challenges surrounding insider risk magnify where future AI. Applications in this space are heading where individuals suspected of insider trading pose risk for organizations. In many ways, it's through their relationships within those organizations, many of which, let's be serious, are false positives or categorically just not indicative of increased insider risk. But knowing that is the case with certainty, of course, is a much different task, as longtime listeners of the show are already aware. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.